Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Some years ago now, when we were first beginning a partnership, a mission partnership with Italy, there were some... It's going to be one of those days, isn't it? When we were beginning a partnership with Italy some years ago, there were some questions about that partnership. The Tennessee Baptist Mission Board had formed a partnership with that country, and we as a church had decided that we would join in with that and begin sending mission groups uh, to that country. But the questions, questions that I got from friends outside of the church when I told them what we were doing, and no doubt questions from some of you within the church as well, went something like this. Why in the world would you go to a country like Italy? After all, Italy is very religious. And aren't there other countries that aren't nearly as religious as this one? Now, those concerns were in part correct. Italy is a very religious country. Those of you who have been with us on any of the trips we've done know that firsthand. I mean, everywhere you go, there are beautiful cathedrals which were built for the worship of God. There are countless statues and tapestries and frescoes everywhere you go. All of the major cities have thousands of these things that tell about the biblical story. I mean, we live in what we call the Bible Belt. And yet, in spite of the fact that we live in the Bible Belt, you don't see statues of David every time you turn around or biblical portraits of the uh, incarnation or the resurrection of Christ. And yet, in spite of this, There is very little true saving faith in Jesus as the Messiah who saves from sin, at least not from a biblical perspective. Many of those cathedrals are mere tourist attractions rather than houses of worship. I remember going into one and there were thousands of people there in the the main auditorium of this cathedral and we were all looking at the architecture and the art and the history And then over on the side in a little nave, there was a a mass going on. And there were just a handful of people in there. So there were thousands of people in this building and only a handful of people who were actually worshiping. And I can make the case that even those handful of people worshiping were probably not doing it as the Bible says they should. So there is a lot of religion but little true knowledge of Jesus or commitment to faithfully following him in obedience. And we certainly know that same truth here in America, again, especially in our part of the country. Here in the South, we just assume everybody goes to church. That's why when we meet someone, we say, where do you go to church? We don't say if, we assume they go. We're just asking where. I mean, take a look at obituaries. What's the first thing that is listed in the vast majority of obituaries after the name of the deceased, their age, and their birth and death dates? It is the church that they were a member of. 
Now, whether they faithfully attended there or not, doesn't really matter. It's the first thing in the obituary. It still amazes me that people who have not been to church for years or even decades would see fit to put the first thing in their obituary as their church membership. I've only been hunting a few times in my life. And all of those few times are when I was a teenager, so I haven't been hunting in decades. So I'm not going to put the first thing in my obituary, he loved to hunt. And yet so many people do that with church. Of course, this is not a new problem. It is not a problem that is confined to our part of the country nor our time in history. I mean, who did Jesus have the harshest things to say about? Who did Jesus have more conflict with than anybody else during his earthly ministry? It was the religious leaders of his day, those who thought they were good enough on their own, those who thought they didn't need salvation from God because, after all, their own righteousness was clearly pleasing enough for God. And then they looked down on everybody else with contempt who clearly were not living up to their standard. We are going to continue our series that we began last week on some of the parables of Jesus. And I remind you that we are looking at parables that I have not preached before. And so we are not going to be looking at the more famous ones that you are familiar with. Now remember that a parable is a story, a made-up story of that. It didn't really happen. But it is a made-up story designed to teach a spiritual truth. And therefore, it is that spiritual truth that we are after, not necessarily every detail of the story. So today, we are in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, and I'm calling this elements of a good story. We're going to see four elements that are necessary for every good story, at least the biblical stories that we're dealing with. Now, it's a story about two sons, but not the two sons you're familiar with. Again, this is not the parable of the prodigal son and the older son who stays home in his self-righteousness, but it is a story that is worthy of our looking at this morning because it has all four of these elements. Now, once again, it's very brief, but I want you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to be looking at some of the surrounding verses as well. Matthew 21, 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same. I'm sorry. Yes, he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not receive him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him." Now, the first element of a good story is what I'm calling setting the stage. 
which simply means we need to understand the context in which that story takes place. This is why sometimes movies or books begin slowly before the action picks up because they've got to introduce to you the times in which this story takes place and develop the characters that are in that story. And so sometimes even a a movie will have the date. It'll come across the bottom of the screen telling us the time in which this movie is occurring. It's also why I don't like movies that continually flash back to previous times and then return to the present and do that over and over again. I can't keep up with the setting, so when I come across a movie like that, I very seldom finish it. I turn it off because I'm confused about what setting we are involved with. Now, the setting of this story is not nearly as difficult to follow. All we have to do is look at the context of Matthew 21 that surrounds it. So you've still got your Bibles open. Let's go back to the very beginning of chapter 21, and you'll see a heading above that, no doubt, in your Bible, and that heading says the triumphal entry. So of course we know that Matthew 21 is taking place during that last week of Jesus' earthly life when he is coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. He is staying in Bethany with some friends, but he's going to come back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem on a daily basis, at least until he is arrested later in the week. And so this chapter and the first part of the next chapter presents us with three symbolic acts that Jesus performs, followed by three parables that describe or explain what those symbolic acts are like. And this whole thing, all three acts and all three parables really make the same point, though they have different plots. This is why it is important to understand what is going on around our text Rather than just reading the parable, it's important to understand what is going on. So the first act that we find in this chapter is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself as king and Messiah, though certainly not in the manner that they would have expected a king to present himself. And of course, we are very familiar with this scene We know that they welcome him into the city with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then the next symbolic act, we find Jesus in the temple. Again, all of this is right here in chapter 21 if you want to glance at it. We find him in the temple and he is cleansing the temple. He is casting out the money changers from the temple. This is because he is trying to demonstrate his authority. It's not really about the money changers per se. It is about Jesus having authority in the temple, something, of course, that is not going to sit very well with the religious leaders, and they are going to challenge him on that, something that we will see in just a moment. The next day, so he goes back to Bethany, he comes back. The next day, as he's coming toward Jerusalem, he is hungry. And the third symbolic act is the cursing of the fig tree. So he comes across this fig tree, he is hungry, but there are no figs there, and to the surprise of his disciples, he curses the fig tree and says, from now on, no fruit will ever grow on you, and the fig tree withers away. This was not an abuse of power, but it was an act with a message directed toward the religious leaders. Okay, so this is followed by the three parables, and this crosses into chapter 22. 
The first parable is the one we are going to look at today, so we'll skip that for the moment, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. All three of these parables help explain the three acts that he's just performed. So all of this is connected. The second parable is the parable of the tenants. And so this vineyard owner has a vineyard, he leases it out to tenants, and he goes away. And when it is time for the produce, he sends a servant back to get his portion of the produce. That's how they paid for leasing the land. But when he sends multiple servants to get his part, they either uh, beat the servant or they kill him. And then finally he sends his son. And they say, this is the heir, let us kill the son and the vineyard will be ours. And so they kill the son. And you can certainly see what he's talking about here. He's talking about the servants being the Old Testament prophets who were sent to warn and to, to tell and they were either beaten or killed, and finally he sends his son, Jesus Christ, and they kill him. And so the question in that parable is, what is the vineyard owner going to do? And the obvious answer is, he's going to cast out these wicked tenants, and he is going to lease the land to others. And then in chapter 22, we have the third parable. The third parable is the parable of the wedding feast. All of these folks are invited to a wedding, but they choose not to come. They have all kinds of excuses as to why they cannot make it, and so they do not come. And so the king who has prepared the wedding feast sends out a servant, and he says, go out into the highways and byways and invite any and everybody to come in because the feast is ready, and those who were invited did not come, so invite everybody else. All of this, of course, is not really about vineyards or figs. It's not about weddings or feasts. Rather, it is about how Israel as a whole had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and as a result, the message of salvation was now going to go to Gentiles. And we're going to see that same truth in the parable of the two sons. But one more point in setting the stage before we move on. There is a challenge to the authority of Jesus. In, in the midst of all of these acts and parables, there is a challenge to the authority of Jesus. They ask him directly, what authority or where do you get the authority to come into the temple and cast people out? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, you answer a question for me and I'll answer that. And so he asked them, John, where did he get his authority? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they are perplexed. They have a quandary on their hands. They don't know what to do because if they say John had authority from heaven, then the response is going to be, then why didn't you believe him? But if they say John's authority was from men, they are afraid of the people because the people regard John to be a prophet. And so they do not answer Jesus. And likewise, Jesus says, then I will not answer you either. And that's important because John's going to come up in our parable. And if we don't know that they've just questioned the authority of Jesus based on the authority of John, then we're going to be a little bit confused when John shows up in the parable that we are looking at. Finally, look real quickly at verse 45. In verse 45 of this chapter, we see these words, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. Okay, so that's the audience. 
he is speaking these parables, and obviously the one we're looking at today, and his audience, the ones he is addressing, are the chief priests and Pharisees. All right, so we have set the stage. Second element to a good story, we've got to actually be telling the story. We have to understand what the story is about before we can move forward to try to figure out what the meaning is or how it applies to our lives. So before we can grasp the spiritual truth, we have to know the basics of the story itself. This parable or story is very brief. It's really only about three verses, and frankly, it is pretty straightforward. A man has two sons, and those of you with multiple children, regardless of gender, know how different kids can be. I mean, even those who are close in, in age, or perhaps even twins, can have different personalities and gifts and abilities. And that is why as parents, we often have to adapt our parenting styles to the specifics of a child. We have to know them and know what motivates and encourages and discourages so that we can parent them appropriately. Now, sadly, many of you also know that kids coming from the same household, the same environment, raised in pretty much the same way, can make drastically different choices in life. They've got the same upbringing, but some of them faithfully follow the Lord. Some of them absolutely abandon the things of God. And as parents, we struggle mightily when such choices are made. And see, we see that same thing in this basic story. And so the father asked the sons to do something. He asked them separately. In other words, they're not together. He asked one, and then he turns around and asked the other one. And the command is very clear here. This is not an opportunity for one of the boys to say, sorry, dad, I didn't understand what you were saying. There's a lack of communication on your part. That's the favorite today, right? If you don't do what someone tells you to do, you blame them for lack of communication. But there's no chance of doing any of that here. The command is extremely clear. They are told to go and work in the vineyard. And a vineyard is a common setting for a comparison to Israel, both in the Old Testament and in the New, even as the second parable in this series tells us. Now the two sons had an opposite reaction. The first son refuses to do what the father told him to do, only later he changes his mind and he goes. The second son readily agrees, only he too changes his mind and ultimately does not go. And so the question then becomes, which one did what the father asked? Which one fulfilled the father's command? Which one did the will of the father? And so it's a very simple story, and frankly, it is easy to answer that question. It is not the one who verbally agreed to work in the vineyard, but didn't. It is the one who initially said no, but thought better of it and went into the vineyard. Every parent here immediately knows the answer to that question. This is not a hard question. Which child did what you commanded them to do? The one that said they would, but didn't? or the one who refused and then thought better of it and did. Actions speak louder than words. So saying you're gonna do something is just the first step. And that first step proves meaningless if you don't wind up doing what you said you were gonna do. I mean, every parent has had this conversation. I thought you said you were gonna clean your room, but they didn't. 
which means they didn't do what you told them to do, whether they verbally said they would or not. And just as every parent in this room knows the answer to the question, so too did the chief priests and Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking. They correctly answered the question that Jesus posed to them from this story. Because clearly, Jesus does not criticize their answer in any way, nor rebuke them for their answer, because their answer is correct. So, so far, so good. A simple story with a simple message. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And that means do what they say, not just say you're going to do what they say. But this simple story with a simple message, is about to take a dramatic turn. And those listening, including perhaps some of you, are not going to like the turn that this story is about to take. And so we've talked about setting the stage. We've talked about telling the story. And if it's just a story, then we can stop there. If this is just a short story for our entertainment, then we can close our Bibles and go home. But again, this is a parable designed to teach a spiritual truth. And since we have not yet looked at the spiritual truth, then we are not done. So the third thing we need to talk about is driving it home. That is, we've got to make the point that the parable makes. We've got to transition from the story itself to the spiritual truth that is being made. Now, remember last week I said that a large percentage of parables talk about the kingdom of heaven or the synonymous phrase kingdom of God, and we do see kingdom of God used here. I remind you of the definition that we used last week, the kingdom of heaven, at least in the present sense, we looked at four different aspects last week, but in the present sense, the kingdom of heaven or God is the redemptive rule or reign of God through Christ in the lives of persons as evidenced by his acting in, through, and around them. So the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is really the salvation work of God among people like us in the present time. So that's why we say redemptive rule. It is about salvation. Who is in the kingdom of God and who is not? Who is saved and who is not? And how do you transition from not being saved into being saved? How do you transition from not being in the kingdom of God to being in the kingdom of God? So immediately after they correctly answer the question, Jesus makes a very startling statement. And we really do need to pause here just a moment and realize how jaw-dropping this statement that he makes would have been to those who heard it. Again, he is making this statement to the religious leaders of the day, the men who knew the law and taught it to others, the men who believed the law and strove, strived to live it, the men who thought that they were living faithfully according to that law, that their lives were beyond reproach and their lives were an example for everyone else to follow. These are the men who said, we know God and we are faithful to God. And if you want to know what that looks like, just look at us. And yet to these men, he says, I tell you, even prostitutes and tax collectors are going to go into the kingdom of heaven before you. 
Now, this whole thing would conjure up the worst of sinners in society. I mean, to these men, to to hear this kind of statement, these were, in their minds, the worst sinners of their day. Sometimes the phrase is tax collectors and sinners. Sometimes it is Gentiles added in there, encompassing all that were non-Jews. But here it's somewhat even worse, prostitutes and tax collectors. Do you remember the parable of the two men who went into the temple to pray? Remember, these categories of people, and I know we don't like to categorize people, but that's what, that's what is done here. But in these categories of people, we find in their minds people who were not respectable in society at all and certainly not welcome in the temple, much less the kingdom of God. These were the outcasts in society who had no business in their minds dealing with them at all. So Jesus tells this other parable about two men who went into the temple to pray, and one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands off, and his prayer to God goes something like this, Father, I thank you that I'm not like them. Thank you that I'm not a tax collector or a a sinner. Because that shows us their pride and self-righteousness. That shows us their contempt that they felt toward others. Now, it might surprise you that tax collectors are included in this bunch, that tax collectors in that day would have been deemed some of the worst of sinners. I mean, we may not like tax collectors in our day, but we don't consider them to be the worst of sinners. But in that culture, Jews who were collecting taxes for Rome were not just tax collectors, they were traitors. They were doing the bidding of Rome who were over the Jews. And not only that, they often cheated. That is, they took more than they had to take in order to line their own pockets. You remember the story of Zacchaeus? I know you remember him from Sunday school as the short little fella. But that's not the important point today. The important point was Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And after he met Jesus, he promised to restore to anybody he had defrauded up to four times. So he's an example of not only a tax collector, but a cheat. He was stealing from the people. And I remind you that Matthew, who is writing the gospel we are looking at, was also a tax collector before becoming a disciple. So then Jesus refers back to, this, to the ministry of John. And that's why we talked about that dialogue earlier, because John comes up in this story. And he says, John came in righteousness. Now, that can mean one of two things. It can mean John came living a righteous life, that is, living morally, and no doubt he did, Or it can also mean that he came preaching or proclaiming the need for righteousness, which I also think is true. So both of these things can be true. The point here is that they heard the message of John and by extension the message of Jesus and the sinners, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, not every one of them, of course, but many of them believed. And this, of course, is what we saw in Zacchaeus. He repented and he believed in Jesus and he made amends for the sins that he had committed by repaying what he owed. So these sinners as a group recognized their sin and their need for a Savior and responded to the salvation message of John. 
On the other hand, these religious leaders did not believe even after seeing the changed lives of others. This is a further indictment on their stubborn blindness. Having seen how God could transform what they deemed to be the worst of sinners, they still did not respond and believe. Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that one of the reasons he was an apostle to the Gentiles was because he hoped that the successful mission to the Gentiles would cause jealousy among the Jews. That is, that they would see the successful mission among the Gentiles and they would believe and be saved as well. That it would awaken them to their own need for Jesus. But these men had lips that were claiming to be close to God. But the truth of the matter was their hearts were far from him. They had hearts of rebellion and disobedience, just like the son who said he would work in the vineyard but then chose not to. Their verbal affirmation did not involve repentance or submission or genuine obedience. And as a result, it was worthless. Their own righteousness certainly not being good enough. They were self-righteous, striving to work in their own vineyard building their own reputation and erecting their own kingdom. And Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what that means is not that there were some who were righteous and didn't need salvation. What he meant by that was there are some, and these religious leaders are an example, there are some who believe in their own righteousness and therefore they will never see the need of the righteousness of Christ. They will always trust in their own good works and efforts. Or again, as Paul says in Romans, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. There, in a nutshell, is the problem. These men whom Jesus was talking to would not enter the kingdom of God because they saw no need to. They were trusting in their own efforts They didn't see themselves as sinners in need of repentance, and therefore they were not about to embrace the righteousness of Christ. While the other class of society had no problem seeing themselves as sinners, everyone called them that anyway, and they knew what they were doing was wrong. So many of them eagerly embraced the message of salvation and as a result found themselves in the kingdom of God. So once again, We could stop right here. We've talked about the setting of the story. We've understood that. We've talked about the story itself. We've got that down. And we've talked about how that was directed at these leaders and religious uh, religious leaders and chief priests. So we could close our Bibles and we could go home, shaking our heads at these blind Pharisees. It's easy to point our finger at others, isn't it? And so we could point our finger at them and say, they just don't get it. Why couldn't they see what Jesus was saying? But what if we're the ones who just don't get it? What if we're the ones who are blind to what Jesus is saying? So therefore, we're not done. We've got to go to the fourth element of a good story, at least a parable. And we've got to talk about making it personal. The spiritual truth needs to be applied to us or we've only really heard the story that applies to someone else and that doesn't do us 
much good. So from a perception standpoint, perception, who would you deem to be the worst of sinners in our society? I'm not asking for a name. I'm not asking for anything out loud at all. I'm saying, what is your perception of the worst sinners in our culture or society today? And we might say something like, well, murderers, rapists, anybody who harms children in any way. Okay, well, let's ask the other question. What is your perception of the most righteous in our society? Now, years ago, you might have answered pastors and priests, but there's been so much going on, I doubt you would answer that anymore. In fact, as I tried to answer that question for myself, with all that's going on in our, in our world, I'm not sure I had an answer for that. But suppose we have a senior adult. Now, I'm just using senior adults as an age category because they will have been the ones who have lived this way the longest. So I'm not picking on our senior adults. I'm just saying they would have lived this way the longest. So you can put in whatever age group you want. But suppose we have a senior adult, and that senior adult has always been a model citizen. They've always followed the law. They are a good neighbor, kind to those who they encounter. And they certainly don't mind helping out those who are in need, at least when they are able to do so. They come to church on a regular basis and have done so pretty much all of their lives. Everything about them looks good on the outside, but the truth is that's exactly what they're trusting in. They're trusting in their own goodness, their own morality, the fact that they are better than most, that their sins are not nearly as, uh, were, uh, nearly as bad as those others. They too are self-righteous. Now, what if I said to that senior adult, I tell you, rapists, murderers, and child abusers, abusers will enter the kingdom of heaven before you. I don't think I'd be a senior adult minister very long, would I? They wouldn't like that because it just doesn't ring true to them. But we need to understand that self-righteousness in whatever label we put on it is never going to get us into the kingdom of God. But you, pro but you protest, neither will the sins that we've been talking about. I mean, if you keep doing all of those sins, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God either. Doesn't the Bible say that? And you'd be absolutely right. We're not saying in this story that the prostitute and tax collectors continued in their sins after they met Jesus. The implication is that they repented of their sins and their lives were consistently transformed by the grace of God. After a list of sinners like this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. But it's also not enough just to claim that you believe in Jesus. I think this story teaches us that as well. You see, the application is, first of all, the self-righteous. Those who trust in their own good works are not going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. But secondly, neither are the self-deceived. 
It is not the one who professes to obey, but the one who actually obeys or does the will of the Father. So those who are trusting in their own works aren't going to be there. Likewise, those who have no works, but they simply say, I believe, they're not going to be there either. Now, that does not mean that we are saved by works, and I always have to say this, but genuine salvation does manifest itself. It does result in works. Those who are genuinely saved are consistently and continually transformed by that salvation such that it is evident in the way we live our lives. The thinking in these days is often, I believe, so it doesn't matter how I live. And again, we have this problem perhaps far more in our part of the country than in some other parts of our country. All you got to do is believe and everything will be fine. I believe, so it doesn't matter how I live. But our saying ought to be, I believe, and therefore it drastically changes the way I live. Jesus said elsewhere, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I mean, that's such an obvious thing. A sincere profession in Jesus as Lord and Savior means a sincere desire and effort to obey him. Calling him Lord and not doing what he says is an oxymoron. Or maybe I should just shorten that. Calling him Lord and not doing what he says is a moron, right? It just doesn't make sense. Because if he's Lord, then you're going to obey him. So let's finish this up by making this as personal as I can. Are you in the kingdom of heaven? Again, that's just a way of saying, have you truly been saved, which is evidenced by the ongoing transformation in your life because you are bearing fruit in said kingdom? Again, the self-righteous are not there. The self-deceived are not there. It only belongs to those who have turned from their own righteousness and received the righteousness of Christ. You know, several times this week, I've been at funerals. I attended one, and I led part of one yesterday. And in both cases, the gospel was presented. A, a simple gospel message was presented in both cases. And I'm not being critical of that. I realize that the setting did not condone itself to a large explanation. So a simple gospel message was given. The ABCs, as we call it in Vacation Bible School, of the gospel. Admit that you are a sinner, that's the A. Believe in Jesus and what he's done for us, that's the B. And C, confess. But the more I think about it, the more I think that's part of the problem. ABC, that's all you have to do. But I think we need to add another letter. And I realize it doesn't flow as well. It certainly doesn't market as well. ABCs, that's, that's easy to remember. I think we need to add an F. The ABCs and F. I'm not doing away with the ABCs, but we got to add the F, and that's follow him. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? He said, follow me. So if we are genuine believers... We don't just say, we do. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the truths that we found here, even if they might be 
a little shocking to us and a little convicting. And I pray that we would not be trusting in our own righteousness. We would not be deceived by a confession that's not a reality, but instead we would trust in you, receive your righteousness, and then through your spirit faithfully follow you. That we would not just say, Lord, but we would submit to you as Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.